Welcome to Business Talk, Sister Gok. I'm Becca, and today's podcast episode is how to manage difficult people and stay sane. And this is actually part three of a series I am doing on this. So if you missed the first two episodes, you can go back and listen to them. And before we jump into part three, I wanted to summarize some of the information we talked about in part two, just because I also am a note taker and I like to just have like the bullets afterwards. So Last week was have a plan before meeting if the situation keeps getting out of control. Number two was know how to admit when you are wrong and apologize. Number three is try to look for patterns in the person's behavior. Number four is connect relationally through listening and asking questions. Number five, have simple core values that encompass what the expected behavior should look like. Number six is have a script that explains how you're trying to continue to care about that person when dealing with disciplinary action in case they accuse you of not caring. Number seven is document conflict issues with others and look for context. All right, so now we are gonna be moving into uh, the, the content for this episode. I hope the last one was helpful. I wish I would have known so much more about these things when I first started dealing with people and managing others. And wow, this week, okay, if you are just like, I'm listening to this series because I have been at the end for a long time. I just don't know what else to do. I have been there and I understand uh, what that feels like. So I just want to try to give a definition really quickly too because we talked about burnout in the podcast series right before this. So you might be in the burnout section, so definitely go check that out. But I want you to understand the difference between compassion fatigue and burnout. Now, compassion fatigue is specifically when you are constantly being traumatized by somebody else so it's like a secondary trauma a lot of times because somebody who has had trauma in their life is now affecting you or maybe they're just there's no reason for it they're just a difficult person that you can understand anyways they're just a difficult person and they consistently are traumatizing you and over time that can lead to your inability to have compassion for them anymore it's just like you know what we do this every day here we go again and I do not feel that I can help you anymore. And that that's huge. That happens especially to people who are in any kind of caregiver business. If you are um, doing any kind of stuff with um, people who are in the nursing home or as a social worker or in the healthcare industry in general, just anytime you're trying to serve someone who physically has something wrong with them, it, it can it over time those people if they treat you poorly, they can, you can have compassion fatigue. And that's not just specific to that. Anybody who's in a state of crisis in general, uh, or even like coming out of a, a hard situation, such as homelessness or being a refugee, all of those things can uh, affect you with compassion fatigue if, if people are treating you poorly while you're trying to help them. And when someone's treating you poorly, it's trauma, okay? And not necessarily major trauma but it is small little things i mean if you've ever i went to a restaurant once and the waitress was really angry that we were sitting there and didn't give like the check far enough to the end of the table so she could grab it but she never mentioned it until she got really angry and started yelling at us and afterwards i was like why does my body feel so icky right now and because even though it was just a, a slight comment and an attitude that bad mood 
affected me. And if you have someone that consistently is treating you that way over and over again, it can really be hard to have compassion and kindness for that person while you're trying to help them or uh, pay them or whatever. So especially as a manager, that can be a place where you just get stuck between a rock and a hard place because you're trying to manage somebody who consistently is showing you disrespect or makes you feel degraded in your conversation with them. Okay, so I'm going to read this definition or difference between compassion fatigue and burnout so that we can identify what they are. And this is actually from the griefworkcenter.com, Barbara Rubel's website. So the first one is compassion fatigue is caused by the exposure of traumatic material. Burnout is caused by work-related attributes such as the job, coworkers, one supervisor, and poor work culture. Compassion fatigue has a rapid onset and can be felt after the first experience of absorbing one's traumatic material. Burnout emerges gradually over time as the work-related attributes such as too much paperwork, lack of resources, and long shifts pile up. Compassion fatigue is a term that describes the impact of helping others. Burnout is a term that describes the impact of a stressful workplace. Compassion fatigue has a quicker recovery time than burnout if managed early. Burnout has a longer recovery time. Now these two do go hand in hand because yes, burnout is like the stressful workplace, is maybe like the supervisor, the work culture, but if you're managing people, you're trying to help those people be good at their job and when they treat you poorly, that's the compassion fatigue, okay? So you can have both at the same time. It, it can go hand in hand because if you're helping people in the community versus your job, I mean, you can be getting compassion fatigue from something outside of work as well. So just know that a lot of times these are hand in hand together. So if you're, if you're like, yep, that's where I'm at, um, I hear you, there's two things going on. <laughs> Okay, so the biggest thing that I think is important to know about compassion fatigue is that it can hit you over and over again in new ways, even if you've recovered from it. Because your body can be triggered to go into that survival mode by previous issues you've had with others. So if somebody's consistently had these like explosive behaviors to you after you've said, okay, well, this is what we need to do, or I've made this decision, whatever, um, in, in a managing role, it can really affect you and how um, you go about that the next time and realize that you're starting to do things in a survival mode mindset where um, some really common side effects are like having an all or nothing mentality where you're just like either this person leaves or I'm done. And like if you get to that all or nothing part, um, I've been there. I know what that's like. I, I know like, and you can start feeling boxed in where you're like, I got to have boundaries and there's no boundaries here and I need to change something. Something's got to give. And that, that mentality comes from a survival place, which means that you're losing your access to your logic processing center at the front of your brain because you're in survival mode and your fight or flight is kicking in which makes you sometimes a really unreasonable person to discuss the conflict with if you're talking to another manager. Sometimes when you're in this place, you don't seem logical anymore and you look like the crazy person. And that's never a good place to be when you're trying to make sure people are hearing you 
and um, actually addressing the problem. And this can happen when like you feel like you, even if you feel like you have a plan and you're like, okay, this is what we're going to do. And then that person just reacts again. It pushes you right back there where you can lack of logic processing to say some things that you don't mean or to to just say I'm done and um, make really rash decisions that can affect your own personal life or even really try to you give that person what they were looking for is validation that they were right in a lot of ways and that's not uh, that's not good or healthy so there's a couple other things that can be with compassion fatigue you can feel a sense of hopelessness that it doesn't matter what I try, nothing's ever going to change. You can self-isolate where you don't want to tell other people anymore about what's going on in your life or in the work things that are happening. And you just want to stay by yourself and not go out and talk to anyone about it. You can feel very like stressed in terms of like you can have stomach aches, headaches. You can feel either exhausted all the time or inability to sleep at night. These are all things that are signs of compassion fatigue. And um, I have had every single one of those at some point (laughs) in my compassion fatigue and burnout. And I know a lot about that because I've experienced it. So I think it's really important for you personally to be able to know what is actually going on in your body so that you don't start making irrational decisions that make you look like the crazy person because been there, done that. (laughs) Okay. Other really great things to know that I've learned that have given me so much more grace for other people. Um, Did you know that 25% of America has a disability of some sort? And disabilities are not always, first of all, diagnosed or second of all, visible. A lot of people have mental health issues that are not able to be identifiable by just looking at a person. One of them would be reactive attachment disorder. This is something that affects many people and it can actually happen in two different ways. Now, I'm going to get into a lot of different diagnoses uh, just to give you some idea because a lot of times when you start hearing, this is what this person commonly does if they have this diagnosis, it's like, oh, I know somebody that does that. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. And it can give you a lot more grace if that's the person you're managing and give you tools to research about how to manage that person better to support them to be successful as well as keep your sanity, okay? So reactive attachment disorder can happen in two different types of development, okay? And this can happen as a child when they are between the ages of zero to two. If a baby is not like held and nurtured where there's actual physical contact happening and let's just say that child is just left there and fed occasionally or maybe not even fed all the time, that can actually create chemical changes in the brain that make that child have a difficulty as they develop to have empathy for other people. And a really big piece of this comes from when you hold a baby and you mirror what is going on with the baby or they mirror you back and forth, that empathy is developed. And if somebody doesn't have those initial interactions between zero to two years of age, it really makes it hard for them to understand why what they're doing affects other people and hurts them, right? And uh, honestly, like reactive attachment disorder, I had no idea about any of this till I started learning really in-depthly. And 
it's really common for serial killers to have reactive attachment disorder because they do not have an understanding of the consequences of what they're doing to other people and how that affects them. Because they just, they can't, they can't process it. And I'm not saying that everyone you know who has that is a serial killer, not. Side comment. I just thought that was a really interesting thing to know. Okay, so with reactive attachment disorder, the other way you can develop this is as your brain is developing, you are constantly moved from situation to situation with rejection following it. So if you were in a home that said, nope, we don't want you here anymore and you had to go to another home and that just kept happening to you, um, that creates this, this cycle of wanting to attach and trying to attach to a person and then that person rejecting them having this attachment broken, um, it, it affects the brain and it affects that person's ability to attach again in the future, again and again and again. And what ends up happening in the workplace when you see this is if you're a manager that really cares about people and you're working with somebody that maybe has had some struggles in life and, and you're really trying to help them make great progress and that person's doing so well and then all of a sudden, just something crazy ridiculous happens and that person just starts freaking out or acting weird or not showing up and you're like, what is going on with this person? Well, the reality is that that person was starting to attach to you and creating a bond of trust. And whenever that happens to somebody who has reactive attachment, it's not long before they try to self-sabotage that relationship because they want to be in control and they don't want to give somebody else the ability to hurt them. And this is something that's learned over and over again in their brain. And so if you've ever had that happen, know that there's probably something deeper going on from that person's childhood that they're now bringing into the workplace. And it doesn't matter if that attachment is happening with coworkers where they really feel like they're a part of a team or with you as you're trying to coach them through skills. That can be really difficult to overcome. But the only way to help that person get past reactive attachment disorder is through therapy and consistency and safety, which quite honestly can be really hard to do as a business owner who's trying to stay profitable if you don't have supports in place to be able to help that person and so if you ever do have um, somebody coming in that you think man there might might be something else going on with them I would always recommend trying to talk with them just a little bit about hey what's going on in life and doing that listening because when you listen you can figure out maybe there's other services such as I know uh, vocational rehab services is a department of like the state of Minnesota that is specific to people with disabilities and they have a lot of things they can do by bringing in like a coach that can work with that person on the job until they get the job rolled down. And then if they start having issues in the future, that person can come back in and help them again. But but what has to be done first is that person needs to be diagnosed. And so even just saying, hey man, this is going on, maybe we should get you some help. Do you need psychological help or do you need to be in a program? Because commonly these things are coupled with substance abuse in adults as well as honestly children underage people so it's really important to know what else is going on in that person's life now the next thing i wanted to cover as a disorder that i think is really helpful to understand is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder now this one the top three signs of somebody who has this 
are the inability to manage money, lack of concept of time, and socially awkward. And I'm just going to say right away with this, I need to describe what happens with fetal alcohol. So while a, a child is in the womb, if a mother drinks alcohol, it actually affects the frontal cortex development. And if you ever look at pictures of the brain with somebody who has this um, extremely, it actually like it's it's permanent brain damage. It is actually worse to drink alcohol while pregnant than it is to do meth. It's that damaging to your brain because it's permanent. You can't undo it. And it actually can create major gaps in one's ability to process future things. So like when I said those top three signs, that's where your absenteeism can come from because they just honestly don't know what time to get there or they forget. And there's a lot of repetition that needs to happen for that person to become consistent. And quite honestly, I think it's, I was looking at the CDC website. I believe it's like two in every 10 women uh, admit to drinking alcohol while pregnant. So like that's like two out of 10 people in the world, in the United States that have this issue that we don't even realize. And this commonly shows up in the workplace as well when you teach someone a skill and you're like, this is the process and they just have it down. Like it is good to go. And you're like, great. And then the next day they show up and they remember absolutely nothing about what you just taught them. And you're like, what? We just went through this whole thing. And part of that is because they don't have the ability to access that long-term memory as well as other people. And putting something in their short-term memory doesn't mean it's pushing to their long-term memory to, to have tomorrow. So that's why anything you teach somebody that has FASD needs to be really focused on repetition, 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 just over and over again and using the same terminology. Now, if you work with... Um, somebody who's maybe a little younger and their parents are still like maybe they're living at home or whatever talking with how their parents are discussing things with them can be incredibly helpful in managing that person because if you can use the same terminology that their parents are using at home it can help them be successful in the workplace way better and a lot of times too when you say I need you to go do this 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 and this that's way too many steps you have to say I want you to do this, then come back and talk to me. And now I want you to do this, now come back and talk to me. Because a lot of times they can't do sequential tasks and remember every step unless it's written down or they have pictures to help them. Now, because it's a spectrum, it means that the amount of alcohol they were exposed to is dependent on how bad their um, brain was affected. So somebody who has FASD can be incredibly book smart but have absolutely no common sense. And that's really common to find somebody who um, can just kill it in schoolwork or in accounting or whatever. But when you ask them like common sense questions, such as where do you think people commonly get a license plate? Um, like the response could be, well, wherever you were born. <laughs> and that doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of funny, but the reality is it's because there's something going on there that they can't make that logical next step. Another really common symptom of this is somebody who's incredibly off balance or just really struggles to not be clumsy. 
that's that's really common for people with FASD as well. And there are so many other things with that, like to learn and there's tools out there to really help um, these people be successful because they really are incredibly loyal, hard workers, uh, seriously, that, that have a really big heart. But it's important to know what's going on in their brain because if you don't know that, you don't know how to help and you don't know how to manage them with the right tools to help them be successful. And we are running out of time for this week, so I want to make sure that we can really get into a couple more different diagnoses or disorders that could be affecting a person um, that makes them feel like they're difficult to work with as you manage them. So come on back because there are a ton more things that you can learn about how to manage difficult people while staying sane. So important for your health and so important just in general to be successful in life. Okay, I'm going to transition now to a Sister Gok story about um, last week I talked a little bit about uh, my dog Pickles who's really good at just being intuitive with people's emotions. And I'm going to tell you another story about that because for a while I was working with um, somebody who is significantly bigger than me um, in, in terms of size. And I was so blessed to have the opportunity to have my dog with me at different, at different places when I would go to uh, work with this individual. And there would be times where um, I would have to bring accountability in to the situation. And there was, there was a lot of raised voices where all of a sudden somebody would be trying to tower over me and yell at me and basically um, try to just say really disrespectful things to me. And every time like a conversation would get to that point, um, Pickles is just so good about calmly walking in and sitting down right next to the person that's freaking out and um, just waiting it out. And uh, just amazing with that because he knew like, okay, this situation does not seem safe. But at the same time, he has such a comforting presence. And um, whenever anyone would get upset like that, it would just be so great for Pickles to walk in and sit down right next to that person. And I'd just be able to say, hey, he can see that you're a little uh, worked up right now. Do you want to just take a moment and um, give him a pet? Because he would, um, he just needs to know that you're okay. And when that would happen, um, it was just so great because there would just be this moment of like compassion or realization. Oh yeah, my volume affects other people and actually affects the way animals feel and are concerned. And um, like that was just such a wonderful thing. And I've had that happen so many times or when somebody's crying, uh, Pickles does that too. He'll just come over. He does not like being hugged. But when somebody's crying, he will just let them hug him. And um, yeah, wow, he's been such a great buddy to have in my business and just in working with people in general. So I hope you enjoyed that story. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this podcast episode, you should give it a review on Spotify on your phone. It's under Business Talk Sister Gawk, and I will see you next week as we continue our series.